How is everyone? Hi, white family. <laughs> I don't know why I singled you guys out. That was fun. Last night, uh, we, uh, Denise and I joined uh, Dennis with the, with the kids. We went down to the little uh, parade down there in uh, Palm Springs. And I think it's still happening, actually. I'm pretty sure it's, oh, it was a long parade. Um, but uh, it was fun. We teased him a little bit about that. But uh, hey, if you would, uh, raise your hands if you need a Bible. Uh, put your hand up in the air if you don't have one with you. Or, you know, and, and if you uh, don't have a Bible at home uh, or at work or whatever, keep the one that we give you. We want you to have the Word of God as your gift to read daily. In fact, you can also get on your phone. There's a little version Bible app. And then there's uh, another one called Dwell, so you can listen to the Bible while you drive. Um, great stuff. So, uh, John Knox said, The scriptures of God are my only foundation and substance in all matters of weight and purpose. Or weight and importance, excuse me. I looked up and didn't read that. Um, you may also have noticed that we've lit our second Advent candle this morning. That candle symbolizes love and peace. It can be called the Bethlehem candle in remembrance of Joseph and Mary's journey and experience uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, it, the, it also uh, represents faith um, as a theme for the second week of Advent, which our text today actually addresses pretty thoroughly. Um, the color purple is associated with prayer, contemplation, and repentance and hope, as we talked about last week. But purple is also the color that represents royalty uh, to remind us that we await the return of the King of Kings that was born in Bethlehem. And the candles, as we spoke about last week, sit in that wreath, which is like a wedding ring. It's an unending circle representing Christ's unending love for us. And reminding us to keep him at the center of all of our Christmas celebrations and traditions. So uh, I want to challenge you this week to reflect on what it means to trust in his faithfulness and meditate on his love and the peace that he brings. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. Luke 9, 37. On the next day, when he had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. But while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground, and he convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. When they were, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Our faithful God, we have gathered 
because of the coming of your son. And we await his glorious return. God, we surrender our desires to you and our appetites. As we look to our Lord Jesus, who became flesh, who dwelt among us, who suffered and died in our place and has promised to return. We now ask you, O God, that you would cause us to be faithful to hearing and to doing your word. So therefore, we surrender ourselves to you now in submission to the one who submitted even unto death on our behalf. We give this time over to you to open our hearts to hear your voice and be filled with your Holy Spirit as we open your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We opened up last week by talking about Christmas movies. We saw a clip from Miracle on, 40, uh, on 34th Street where they were realizing the identity of Kris Kringle, that he just might be the real Santa Claus. And then we Turn from that to the Bible where we saw how God the Father affirmed to Peter, James, and John in a miraculous way the identity of Jesus, his son, his chosen one. And we saw that God told us exactly how to respond to that truth, which was what? Do you, does anyone remember? How do we respond? Listen to him. I heard, I heard it out there somewhere. Somebody was listening. Uh, we saw also that the transfiguration was a, was a powerful supernatural experience that pointed to the hope that we have in the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ because of his identity as revealed in that event. And the experience was so powerful that Peter had wanted to build tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and he wanted to just stay right there. And it was probably the most emotionally and spiritually powerful thing these disciples had ever experienced. Everything in the world was right in that moment. Little Susie had her dream house with the swing set in the backyard. Right? Tiny Tim was alive and running around without a crutch. The townspeople had come together to save the small bank, and George Bailey is happy to be alive. Ebenezer Scrooge has generously overpaid for the biggest Christmas goose for the Cratchit family. There's, this is the feeling of the transfiguration. It's a moment in time you would never want to leave. It's like the end of a good Christmas movie where it all comes together and Christmas is saved. In the minds of Peter, James, and John, it couldn't possibly get any better than this. But Jesus had no intention of keeping them in that place. Now they have to go down the mountain. The next morning, they wake up to find Cousin Eddie out front dumping the waste from his RV in the gutter. It, you, you know who that is if you've seen the edited-for-TV version of Christmas Vacation. Well, it wasn't actually Cousin Eddie. It was a demon, and he was abusing and torturing a man's beloved son. You get the point. The disciples are back in the physicality of normal human life. And after their magical experience on the mountain where they, everything feels right, the ugliness of the evil that exists in the world in contrast to that experience makes it all that much more unpalatable. 
And they come across this demon-possessed kid who, or young adult, who would probably make Cousin Eddie look like a breath of fresh air. And it's, this is the context that we enter as we continue on in Luke's gospel. Back to reality of human life. Luke 9, 37 says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd came to meet uh, to meet him. Once again, we're, we're continuing the narrative of the unfolding identity of Christ. We've seen that there are parts of identity that were easy to accept, but there are also parts of who Jesus is that are much harder to swallow either then or even now. For the Jews in particular, the whole suffering servant part was hard because they were more concerned about Messiah driving out Rome than assume, and then assuming the throne of David. And so Jesus and these three disciples come down the hill, and they're met by a great crowd. And, and we see that his reputation is continuing to spread, and the people are curious about who this Jesus of Nazareth is. Verse 38 continues, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, moving backwards, we saw the point of the transfiguration was, wasn't the experience but what the experience pointed to, the identity of Jesus. And then the Father applies that truth that Jesus is his Son and his chosen one by telling us to listen to him. And you'll note that we have seen the identity of Jesus also connected to suffering. And we've seen that over the last several weeks in Luke. And so why is that important here? To get there, we ask, why did Luke write his gospel so that you may be certain, he says to Theophilus, concerning the things that you have heard about Jesus. It's interesting because one of the big arguments that we face is, how can you believe in an all-powerful God when there's so much pain and suffering in the world? Anybody else hear that one? Ad nauseum, right? From everywhere. It's interesting here, because suffering is a common argument against God, but Luke uses it as a proof. So we move from the transfiguration to human suffering, and from heavenly to demonic, from healthy Tim Cratchit to Cousin Eddie, and there's this incredible contrast between these two events. And I think Peter may have come down to see the demon-possessed guy and I'm thinking maybe he turned to Jesus. The Bible doesn't say this, but I'm thinking he might turn to Jesus and ask, hey, Jesus, you sure that whole tent idea thing is still off the table, right? It's, it's, it's easy to see our faith as an escape from the evils of this world. In fact, we see today a lot of Christians leave California to escape a, a perceived opposition to our biblical morals and values and go to places that seem to be safer and more accepting of Christianity in other states. They, they, they're escaping a perceived political 
oppression. And, and that's a natural instinct. When we feel like we're being oppressed, we move to where we're not, right? We, it's the path of least, least resistance. In a similar way, the Jews are looking for Messiah to deliver them from the political oppression of Rome. And we, we often will see that um, our eschatology, our end times theology, as an escape for us. By the way, compared to Rome, California is not that bad. Just saying, right? Right? We must remember that Peter had to follow Jesus out of this glorious spiritual experience back into the sinful, ugly world. This is the opposite of our natural instinct, right? Peter wanted to stay. Most of the Christmas movies that we watch have some sort of a tragedy or dilemma, and then they conclude with a happy ending. Peter's experience is the opposite. He goes from the happy place on the mountain to a father with a demon-possessed son. Have you ever, have you ever seen a father with a son that is hopelessly ill in some way, child that has seizures? Uh, my, my daughter, Ashley, when she was little, um, she was just an infant, and she was having these little seizures, and we, they, they weren't like grandma, but we, we took her to get tested and all this kind of stuff, and she would come with me, and th there's something about your child when there's something you can't fix. We don't know how old this man's son is. By the way, Ashley's fine now. It was just a uh, infancy thing, but um, we, don't, we don't know how old the son is, uh, but we do know that he was having episodes that were causing something like epileptic seizures. In fact, at first, it sounds like a clear case of epilepsy. And it, and it has been proposed by some that that's exactly what this was. But we have to remember who's writing the Gospel of Luke. He's a medical doctor. Like, he knows the difference between normal epilepsy and something that's got to be demonic, right? And we need to be careful about blaming every malady on evil, but at the same time, the spiritual and physical realms do intersect more often, I think, than we'd like to imagine. Demonic forces can clearly have an effect on the physical world around us. Let's look at Mark, who gives us a little bit more detail here. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. It says, They came to the disciples. They saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately... All the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered them, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation! How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to, the, to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help 
my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and arose, and we didn't enter the house. His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, Mark tells us that this kind of spirit only comes out by prayer. The, the, the King James Version adds prayer, it adds fasting to it, prayer and fasting. It, that's not in the older Greek manuscript, so it, it probably wasn't in the original writing. doesn't really change anything one way or the other, since the power to heal belongs to God. And we're not going to force hand, God's hand one way or the other through our fasting, if we're praying and fasting. It, fasting is important to prayer oftentimes, but not necessarily. Prayer is the central piece, right? Fasting without prayer, what, what's the point, right? But prayer with fasting, that, that's, that's huge. And so there's, there's an important piece of prayer that includes fasting many times. We have some people right now in our own church that are spending their, one, one day a week, they're praying for somebody um, and fasting over that. The point here is that there's something unique about this situation and situations like it that warrants prayer. Now, I don't have any doubts in my mind that there was a clear demonic possession here, but perhaps this young man actually had some sort of epilepsy and the demon was exploiting it. This is possible too, right? The demon can, demons can exploit issues that we have. We don't know. We're not given the details. Whatever the case is, what it tells me is that the problem that Jesus is going to address here has to deal with prayer since we should be praying over every situation, and that's what he had gone and addressed with the disciples. You need to pray. Maybe that's something that was absent, I would think. In other words, maybe it wasn't the uniqueness of the condition that specifically warranted prayer as much as the lack of prayer that was the problem in and of itself. What, what horrible condition wouldn't warrant prayer? Jesus had sent them out in Luke 9, 1 to 5 to cast out demons, to heal disease, to proclaim the kingdom. What part of that doesn't require prayer? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. Owen Strachan said, pray without ceasing is not a sweet-hearted nudge to be a bit more pious than you might otherwise be. Pray without ceasing is an all-out assault on the proud self-sufficiency, rather, that we can all too easily live out. So I believe that at least in part here, what Jesus responds to is connected to prayer. And even though Luke leaves that part out, Luke is dealing with the identity of Christ. But if we go back to Mark, we can see there's more to it than that. I think that prayer is central. Verse 41 Luke 9, 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now, what Luke needs us to know is that there was a faith issue here. Mark identifies prayer as a symptom of the problem. 
And that's why I believe that Jesus is speaking specifically to the disciples in the first part here. There's a dispute among scholars as to who Jesus is directly addressing. And I think that he intends for everyone to hear this, but I believe he's specifically targeting the disciples regarding their faithfulness to pray. Because if we believe, we're going to pray, right? Because we always act according to what we believe. And if we believe that God is sovereign and that he hears pray, or he hears, hears our prayers rather, we will pray, right? Jesus is, I think, saying here that their lack of prayer proves some level of faithlessness, which he connects to, in this case, perversion. The word twisted or that it means that which is crooked or that which is distorted. Some translations use the word perverse in the general sense, and that's a good definition. R.C. Sproul said Jesus links faithlessness to perversion. It's a pretty serious charge. It is a perverse act of unbelief that avoids prayer. Sproul said this, when human beings fail to trust God, they twist their lives into all kinds of crazy shapes. Consider our own age. The sanctity of life has been twisted. The sanctity of marriage has been distorted. We are twisted. We're distorted and therefore faithless. So Luke is dealing with a faith issue here. And what we need to notice is that our faith is directly connected also to Christ's suffering. David Garland said, in Luke's context, the only explanation for the erosion of the disciples' power over demons is that it is somehow connected to their failure to understand Jesus' prediction of his upcoming passion. See, all these things kind of come together here, right? See, they're, they're headed towards Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be crucified. Suffering is a key component to Christ's identity. So a lack of faith and a lack of prayer are connected. A lack of faith and perversion are connected. And a lack of faith and failure to understand Christ's suffering are connected. Because there was a lack of prayer, there was perversion and failure to understand the suffering of Jesus. The evil then was free to continue on and be in control of this man's son. So if you want to conquer evil, three things need to occur, right? Number one, you must understand the suffering of Christ. Number two, you must replace your natural perversion with God's faith or with faithfulness to God. Remember, we are born perverted. We are born with a sin nature, right? And, and we need Christ desperately. So you must replace your natural perversion with faithfulness to God. And lastly, you must pray. You must pray. Those three things are necessary and inseparable. Jesus answered in verse 41. We'll continue here. Luke 9, 41. He answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. He turns his attention to the father. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to the father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So the demon caused some sort of, he causes some sort of destructive seizure, throws him to the ground. And Jesus rebukes the demon and heals the boy and then restores the boy to his father. That's a 
pretty cool thing to do, and I don't believe the placement of this account is coincidental. Jesus is unfolding to the disciples the suffering that he is to endure. And after Jesus suffers, evil is conquered through grace, and then he is restored to the right hand of his Father. And then we get to be adopted into sonship as co-heirs with our Lord Jesus. A little more than a hint of the gospel here, right? That the power of Jesus over evil through his suffering is our great hope. And Luke emphasizes this so that we will trust Jesus, so that we will have faith in him. Two things to notice. The first one is this, and I think this is super important. Jesus works despite the complaints he has of the people. Whoever he's talking to, he has complaints of them. You're not praying. You're, you're, not, you're a wicked and faithless generation, right? What's, what's going on with you? And yet he still works. Jesus still does the work. It's not predicated on them. It's according to him. Secondly, the people respond by being astonished. How often do we marvel at our Lord? How often are we astonished? Because this astonishment will ultimately, as far as the disciples at least we know, will ultimately lead them to prayer and faithfulness and understanding of Christ's identity through his suffering. And as we read on in Acts, we're going to see that they are now willing to suffer in faithfulness on his behalf. Are we? Let's continue on. Luke 9.43 well, they're all marveling at everything he was doing. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand that saying. It was, con it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus goes from demonstrating his heavenly glory here and now in the, in the transfiguration and the, his power over this demon right here on earth, and then to reminding them of his earthly shame and humiliation. It's so important to recognize. There's an ancient heresy out there called Arianism. Some of you may have heard of it. Groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians embrace this heresy. Uh, it was pr first proposed by Arius, thus the name Arianism, um, early in the 4th century, and it was squashed by every... Virtually every pastor, priest, and bishop at the Council of Nicaea, and then every council ever since that time. Uh, what Arianism does is it rejects the Trinity. It rejects that Jesus is eternal God and teaches that the Son of God is not eternal, but is rather the first and greatest creation of God the Father. Well, what has taken place today refutes that handily. And it points to the deity of Jesus in a very profound and gospel-driven way. God the Son left his heavenly throne to dwell among the corruption of humanity as one of us. John 1, 14. John 1, 14 through 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of who I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace 
upon grace. The law, of Mo, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So in order that we could see God, God the Son became flesh and emptied himself to identify with creation out of his devoted love for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Literally, Jesus Christ is Jehovah God, Yahweh. The Christian faith is the only faith system in the world in history that has the humiliation of its God as its central feature. So Jesus opens his mouth here and he speaks to his disciples. And what he says falls in the category of difficult pills to swallow. The, that the creator has come to be humiliated and killed by his own creation. Because he loves them. And it's because this is such a challenging statement, the disciples remain ignorant as to what, is, what it meant. And God allowed that and even enabled their ignorance to, point, to the point that they wouldn't even talk about it. And, and that's okay. It's okay. We often want all of the answers, don't we? Like we, we want, that's, that's why people go to fortune tellers, right? We want the answers. But our good God has no problem keeping things from us when he deems it necessary. And that's okay. And here God does it. He facilitates their confusion. And his love in some way is responsible for that. See, if he loves us enough that he would not keep his only begotten son from the cross for us, what good thing would he keep from us? And so if he keeps something from us, it is good that he does so. David Garland said, what is hidden from the disciples is the necessity that Messiah suffer. Their blindness is rooted in a misunderstanding of God's majesty and a human perception of what constitutes glory. And just like the transfiguration, the glory of the second coming of Jesus also is revealed here. Garland continues. Listen to this. That final battle will not be unlike the exorcism. In this incident, the demon looks like it wins, throwing the lad to the ground in a violent spasm. The son of God's betrayal and death on the cross will also look like another triumph for evil, but it will only be temporary. Amen? We have a doctrinal statement on the end times and the return of Christ in our IBC Constitution. And thankfully, it gives us a framework, but allows for quite a bit of 
ambiguity. Because God is, there's a lot of mystery surrounding those things. And God has purposely withheld pieces of that from us because he loves us. If it were good for us to know, he would have told us because the cross is proof that he will not withhold good from us. But we know a lot. We have a lot of answers and we keep looking to see those signs and that's a good thing. But here's the most important thing. There's a spoiler alert. We know how it ends, don't we? Jesus wins. Amen. We're looking for for Jesus to come much like the Jews had been looking for Messiah to show up. In fact, they were looking in the first coming for what we are looking for in his return. They were looking for the king to assume David's throne. He's gonna. And we get to rule and reign with him forever. The problem with that was that they didn't connect that to the suffering servant that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that uh, Isaiah had described. We need to be careful not to do just the opposite. We understand his suffering and humility, and that's important. It's a key piece to identity. But, want to know what a couple other pieces of his identity are? Sovereignty, majesty. Matthew Matthew 24 speaks of the return of the king. He, He was killed in shame. He ascended in glory, and he will return in majesty. And every knee will bow at that time. Matthew tells us, but the king who identifies both as a suffering servant as a, and as a conquering king is going to look, at, look like in Matthew 24 and 25. And I love this piece in Matthew 25, 34 to 40, which, which talks about how he's going to address us. It says this about the king. Matthew 25, 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You see, Jesus will end human suffering in the very end. But until then, we honor him by caring for those who suffer. And that's part of the faithfulness we talked about. And and part of the call to care for those who suffer is that we can identify and empathize with them because part of the call of a disciple of Jesus is a call to suffering. Most of us here don't suffer all that much in comparison to Christians around the world or really anybody around the world, but we can identify with the suffering of Christ by entering into the world of those who suffer. And that child who was to be born in Bethlehem so long ago, was born into suffering for the purpose of suffering. In fact, the fact that Christians should suffer points to faith. We don't believe Jesus in spite of human suffering. 
but because of suffering. And in the end, because of his suffering, and because he promises to end the suffering that we see around us. Revelation 21.4 says he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen. Last week we saw that the theme of Advent was hope. Well, this week the theme is faith. And that Bethlehem candle, that second candle points to peace and love. And I think that it's interesting that one of the themes that we see, even from the secularists around Christmas, is a, is a word believe. You see it hanging over streets and on the signs, on the street lights in the parking lots and, and all of this. Believe. Believe in what? What does it mean? A lot of things that we can believe in. We can believe... I see people believing a lot of really dumb things. But we can believe in something that brings us hope. And we can believe in it because it's true. Who is the source of love and peace that gives us hope? Jesus. Who's the object of our faith? Jesus. Luke has written for us this account of Jesus so that we might believe in him. He's written that we may be certain so that our faith might be confirmed. And so as we, prayer, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to give us three things to recall so that we might effectively oppose evil out of our faith. The, the Advent season will continue. We're, we're going to continue to gather together in the presence of God to worship. Next week, we're going to join together in one service. All of us will be together uh, over at Camp Maranatha for Christmas share. And we're going to uh, pray. I, I pray that we are, are extremely generous to Camp Allendale at that service. We're going to see uh, the whole children's presentation. And it's just going to be a great time. And, and then... And then we're going to have uh, another Sunday service before Christmas. And then we're going to have a Christmas Eve service, which is awesome. We're going to have two of them, actually. And then on Christmas Day, we're going to come together. Like, of all the Sunday mornings to not go to church, hmm. <laughs> let's, let's be here. Come on, guys. Christmas Day, and we're going to come together, and it's going to be glorious. And in those service, we're going to see the glory and the majesty of Jesus. But then we're going to walk out of those services into the rest of the world to experience something far less glorious. We're going to see our Lord marginalized during the time that we set aside to celebrate Him. We're going to see human suffering. We're going to see people missing loved ones during the holidays. A time of great depression at many, for many people. We'll see that there will be people celebrating Christmas alone. And we're going to hold our breath to see how many businesses will close their doors for the last time during this recessionary period. We're going to see people celebrating things that oppose the goodness of God. And so how can we oppose the evil in this world? 
number one, we pray. We pray. Right? Faith and prayer are connected. A lack of faith and a lack of prayer are connected. And since we always act according to what we believe, we can demonstrate our faith in God through prayer. The enemy hates it when we pray. And prayer is the first step to opposing evil. Number two, repent or replace your natural perversion with faith in God. Right? Repent. The reason Jesus died is because we're all sinners needing a Savior. We need to turn from our sins. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Hebrews 12.1 and 2 it says this. It says, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the object of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The only way is by trusting God. We often read the Bible as a list of things that we don't do. But listen, I think that if we were to spend our time doing what the Bible teaches us to do, we're not going to have time to do the don'ts. Maybe you start with honoring the least of these, right? Be sacrificially generous. Faithfulness is more about doing what God has asked us to do than it is about following a list of things we shouldn't do. Although they are there. Number three, finally, look to the suffering of your Lord. Look to the suffering of your Lord. It, that is, this is proof that your lack of prayer and your unfaithfulness are not beyond God's majesty. Because even though there were issues of prayer and, of, and unfaithfulness, Jesus still conquered the evil in this man's son. If you look ever to the cross, you will be thrust into a cycle of prayer and faithfulness. The cross is what has conquered sin. It is the suffering of Jesus that gives us power to overcome evil. And it is his suffering that we remember as we take the bread and the cup. Is it any secret that of all the things that Jesus did on earth, it's that which points to his suffering that is our regular sacred rite in his church? Pray, trust God and be faithful to him and remember his suffering. And as we partake of his suffering, we're reminded that Jesus wins and evil is doomed. If you're a confessing believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to remember the Lord's suffering and death as we partake of communion. And if you're not, we invite you to consider Jesus. Please, if you would, after the service, see myself or, or one of the elders. Josh is right back here. Um, do we have any other elders here today? You could talk to Chet back there. Talk to Pastor Clint uh, or Linda. Uh, talk to Brian back there. Uh, we, we have people that would love to talk to you and, 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 to, and, and, and to share with you what it means to repent of your sins and to place your trust in Jesus so that you can receive the free gift of his grace and forgiveness. 
The Bible warns us to examine our hearts before we partake. And so as we pass out these elements, I would ask that you would please take the time to consider your sins that Christ suffered to remove from you. In fact, here's what I'd like you to do as you, as you are handed those elements. Maybe close your eyes and think of something this week. Every one of us has blown it. If you have to think back further, think, for, think back further, but I mean, please, right? Right? Think of that one thing. It's a betrayal to God, you know. And think of that one thing. And close your eyes and imagine that one thing being removed from you and placed upon the cross and received with great joy this holy symbol of God's love. Our holy God, we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May we be faithful to pray without ceasing, to turn from our natural perversions and to remember and participate in the sufferings of Jesus and his, to his glory. God, thank you for the cross where you conquered sin and paid the price so that we could know you. Thank you for your great glory in which Jesus ascended to heaven and will return. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive your communion that is set before us. Thank you that Jesus has removed our great debt of sin and has called us to follow him. And thank you that by your grace, the blood of Jesus was poured out on that wretched cross that is yet so beautiful. God, humble us now. Teach us to follow you as we prepare to receive this holy feast in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.